Project podcast listeners. On this week's episode of the podcast, Matt and Jason talk with Larry Sharp. Sharp is an American entrepreneur, political activist, podcast host, and former candidate for the vice presidential nomination to the Libertarian Party of the United States. Also in 2018, Sharp, a resident of New York, ran for governor of the state. Though he came out fourth in that race, his campaign was the most successful libertarian gubernatorial campaign in the state's history, achieving close to 100,000 votes. And for the first time, because of those votes, he ensured automatic ballot access for the Libertarian Party of New York. Sharp also has a degree in anthropology from the University of Maryland and spent close to eight years on active duty in the United States Marine Corps, just like I did. He now runs a business consulting company called Neo Sage Group Incorporated and is host to the Sharp Way Show, where he continues to advocate for libertarian principles on a weekly basis. Welcome to the show, Mr. Sharp. It's a pleasure to have you on. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So you served as a Marine for seven years. Uh, you had a run for governor as a Libertarian candidate in New York in 2016 and 2018. And you've been a longtime advocate uh, for liberty. You recently wrote a book that will be released on July 12th, which we will talk about. Uh, but first, I'd love to hear your take on the current state of the economy. Um, you lost almost everything in the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, you were able to bounce back. We're currently seeing... Prices skyrocketing for everything from lumber to ammo to cars to groceries. In your experience, as somebody who's lived through that, are we currently experiencing hyperinflation? And do you see any parallels to the 0708 global financial crisis? Uh, first piece, I think, is, yeah, the, the crash hit me more like 2009 and 10 because I was a consultant. So the, the ripple effect hit me a little bit later. And I tried to hold on to the best of my ability. You know, for those of you who know entrepreneurs, um, we tend to be very optimistic. And I was like, well, this can't last more than six months, right? Well, no. Clearly that was not true. So, yeah, I really got my, I got my, uh, my ass handed to me in that, in that crash. And what I think is similar and not similar is that in the case of the last crash, people were still actively trying to work through it all. We were trying actively to work through it all. We were trying to find answers. Obviously, many of us were failing, but we were still trying to find answers. This crash is different. In the case of this crash, people actually aren't. We literally just sat back and we're waiting for government to solve everything. And government to give us money, government to give us answers, government tells us when we can go to work. And this is a much harder crash because the entrepreneurial spirit, the growth just isn't there. A lot of powerful or savvy companies came up during the last crash. Ideas changed. This one, not so much. Really what happened is the oligarchy solidified themselves. And that didn't happen last time. Um, the banks are still big to, too big to fail still. That hasn't changed. But I think things like Amazon and, and, and streaming services like that and Google and YouTube and Facebook, I think all the oligarchs have uh, strengthened themselves during this crash, which makes it harder for us because the best way to get out of a crash is you know, creating many Davids to beat the Goliaths, and we're crushing our Davids. We are not just not bouncing back well from the, from the government-imposed um, lockdowns, the government-imposed um, crash, but we're also still trying to destroy everyone who tries to grow. What I mean by that is you see in New York and California particularly trying to destroy 1099s, trying to make sure everybody is an employee, trying to crush the gig economy, 
how do people get around collapses that to change their life around? They've got a, I used to be this. Now I have to be that. This used to be important. Now I have to learn something new. How do you do that? Well, the gig economy does that, right? You, you take on a, a part-time job and learn something. You take on something, you become a consultant and you learn something new and decide if it's right for you or not. That's not going to happen either. Now, if you start a small business, you have to start hiring people. Well, now you can't hire consultants anymore because they're going to want to be employees and you're going to get sued and crushed. Who can afford to hire you and bring you on and train you for six months? Big business. Government. Government and big business can do it all day long. In fact, that's their business model. For the small guy, that is devastating. So I think that's a part that's going to hurt tremendously. There's another piece here, and that is cities. After 2008, there was virtually no recovery except in cities. So about 80% of all new jobs in America came out of 20 cities. So people flocked to the cities because where else was opportunity, right? In smaller towns across America, there was basically several options. You could work for the one big thing, whether that was the prison or the university or the one big factory in your town, or work for the government. You know, I'm a teacher, corrections, whatever, something like that. Or you uh, you worked for a franchise, or you were on the dole in some way, shape, or form, on public assistance, or you were working in a black market, whether the black market was underground construction or whether it was underground uh, farming or whether it's literally the drug trade. One of, one of those three, you were in that world. So you went to cities to have any real opportunities. Well, of course, as people move to cities, they become further left. That's a normal thing. We live on top of each other. We have multiple cultures. Uh, some people have been here two weeks. Some people have been here 20 years. So we cry for a referee. And the referee always winds up being government. So we literally beg for more government. So people in cities become more left. But that's changing now. And why is that changing? Because I see it in my own city, New York City. And after the lockdowns in March of 2020, I was deemed non-essential. And now I can't, you know, I couldn't work because my, my governor, my lord and master, King Andrew Cuomo II, he deemed me non-essential and I couldn't work. So most of my work had to become coaching, which is a thing I didn't do much of in the past. I did some of it, but not much of it. But it became my biggest piece. I was a teacher, trainer, consultant. I had to become a coach because I do it from home. So most of the people who I was coaching were relatively wealthy uh, or at least, you know, high income earners who could afford my coaching fees or whose companies would pay for their coaching fees. Either one. Those people left New York City because why would you live in Manhattan when you can do the same job from your second home? And wealthy people almost always have second homes. They have one somewhere in Manhattan or maybe sometimes Brooklyn in a very wealthy area of Brooklyn if they work downtown. And then they have a second home. Jersey Shore, Connecticut, uh, Florida, the Carolinas, Arizona, sometimes even, believe it or not, even Utah or Colorado. So many of them went there. And they worked from there. And they've been working for their, their, from there over a year. And they don't want to come back. And they're not coming back. And when the wealthy don't come back to cities, then all those who service them also don't come back to cities because why would they why in the world would i pay why i'm going to pay jane jane smith 150k a year to work in manhattan because she has to pay for this new york city when i can let her work in ohio get the same work out of her and paris 75k and she's happy as can be why would i pay for new york city office space when i can pay for i don't know skype or zoom way cheaper so all that's going to change the cities, New York to be obviously the most, most affected. And the sad part is government doesn't get that. Government isn't doing the right thing to, to get people back in action. Government's doing what it always does. Oh, it doesn't work? Squeeze harder. Oh, I don't understand it? Hit it with a stick. Oh, it still hasn't worked? Hit it twice. Hit it with a bigger stick. That'll work. <laughs> that's what government always does, and it's doing it now. So I think that change is going to be huge. The hope, if we are ready for it, and I think we're not, what I've been talking about it is there's a chance now for a renaissance in suburbia and rural areas because as the wealthy move out there, they should become more right. That should happen. So it should begin to balance things out a bit. I don't want a right or left-leaning country. I want a liberty-leaning country so that people can be as left or as right as they want to be without anybody bugging them. If you want to sit in Brooklyn and be left, good on you. Just don't force people who are not in Brooklyn to be as left as you. You want to be super right out in Oklahoma? Good for you. 
just don't force people in Tulsa to be that way. So that's what I want. I think we have an opportunity to see that happening. As the wealthy move out into the rural areas in suburbia, they're going to require services, and they have the cash to pay for it, which means people there can now begin to service them and do things they want to do and begin to make more money and make more cash. That's the hope. So I think what you're going to see is a change in work, and work is going to be people not coming back into cities again, much more um, outside the cities and much more remote. Now, the bad of that is only certain people can do that. Others can't. The good of that is it hopefully will spread out opportunity across the country. That is my hope. And, of course, make cities, in, in, my, in my perfect world, less crowded and better, and better places to be. That would be nice. But I do think there will be changes. The problem, though, of course, is twofold on this. But number one, some of those larger companies don't believe that people are going to quit. They're going to order them to come back into the office. You better come back in, whatever. September 1, everyone back in the, audience, uh, in the, in the office. And a bunch of people are going to say, I'm not coming back. They're going to say, well, then I'll, then I'll fire you. They're going to say, great, fire me. I'll go on, I'll go on unemployment. I'll, I'll stay on unemployment for two years. Good luck firing me. Bye. And then they'll work in the black market, which is what people are doing now. The reason why you see, by the way, the reason why you see so much violence across, across our nation is because the black market's everywhere now. That's, that's how violence comes. That much violence only comes from the black market. So you see people working in the black market off the books, whatever the case may be, while they're collecting unemployment. That's one of the reasons why people aren't going back to work. You probably saw the numbers recently. They're not going back to work. Well, because they just want government money. It's not just that. They're happy with government money. Of course they are. People love government money. So, of course, they're happy with that. But they're also working in the black market. So they're making cash on the side while collecting government money. So that's what's actually happening right now. It's all over the place. So as that begins to happen, people just aren't going to go back. And the big businesses are going to have to react to that, and they're not going to do it well. And the second piece is government wants votes. I get it. I want them too when I run. Everybody who's running wants votes. I got it. The only issue is I'm, I'm not in a position of power where I can bribe people to vote for me. Not that I would anyway. I don't know. Maybe I'd become corrupt too and do the same garbage. I would hope not. But they're all doing it. They want to bribe people to vote for them. So what do they do? They give out free money. The Republicans who didn't vote for the handouts are now touting the handouts because they know that, see, I gave you stuff. Now vote for me. So they're going to keep giving people stuff. And as they keep giving people stuff to buy votes, well, why go back to work? Right? I mean, if I'm going to make the equivalent of $15 an hour not working, well, now McDonald's got to pay me 20 bucks an hour. And to be forward with you, I actually don't mind if people say, I don't want to go back to work unless you pay me 25 bucks an hour. That's fine. Collective bargain. Unionize if you want to, whatever. And tell McDonald's, we're not, if, if you don't pay 25 bucks an hour, I'm not going to work and neither are all my friends. And McDonald's will pay 25 bucks an hour and the price of burgers will go up or they'll automate more and there'll be less McDonald's jobs, but the people working will have more money. And that's fine. That's natural. That's how the market works. My worry is right now, McDonald's is literally competing against the government. That's the problem. If you pull the government money away and people still say, I'm not going back, I'm totally okay with McDonald's having to pay 25 bucks an hour to do whatever it is in McDonald's. I'm okay with that. My worry right now is government is now competing with that. And here comes the bigger problem now. Government is competing right now. So right now, if you want to work at Wendy's or McDonald's or wherever you're going to work, you're going to have to pay somebody 20, 25 bucks an hour. What happens when the money goes away? What when the government finally says no more? Now, to be forward, I'm not sure the government is ever going to say no more. But for the sake of argument, the government says no more. Then what happens? Do we all of a sudden start lowering salaries again? Well, that's lawsuits. Do people start quitting again? I don't know. That the There is going to be a lot of disruption coming up here starting in the fall. A lot of disruption in the work market. Now, add all that together. That disruption in the work market is just going to make prices higher. We're not going through hyperinflation yet. That's not happening now. What's happening is a lack of labor is creating high prices in addition to inflation. But we are not in hyper yet. I don't see that happening yet. That probably won't happen for at least another year or two. My gut tells me, because of politics, not because of economics, that the government will simply somehow hide or just throw tons of money into it until after the 2022 elections. My gut says right after 2022 elections, everything begins to collapse. 
because they don't want it to be bad now because that will affect their elections. So they will just either hide or just print even more money and just keep printing uh, until eventually they go, okay, oh, election's over. Okay, now collapse. So my gut says we're pretty much okay until November 2022. Like you said in the beginning, you know, this is uh, what the it's the government's response that's driving this entire downfall. And uh, oh, yes. yeah, I don't believe that we're in hyperinflation either. And I think that um, I, that's a good it's a good point you made that there was the labor shortage is also driving this. Uh, yeah. Driving the, the, the price increase. And it's it's important to point out, like, um, not all companies are competing with the government. So, like, yes, the minimum wage working um, employers like McDonald's, the fast food industry, such like that. But, like, the Jeff Bezoses, the Bill Gates, the Elon Musks, they're not competing with the government. They're actually, you know, they saw record uh, wealth increases over the last year thanks to the government's lockdown and, uh, you know, and, the, and the, the tyranny that was ushered in over the last 16 months. What you want to think about here is it's the PMC. Right. The the professional management class. Right. They're the ones who are not competing against the government. They're the ones who make the changes. They're the ones who are packing up and moving out to other areas. Right, right, right. I'm talking, but I was just talking about like the, you know, like the the world's richest people all increased their wealth, you know, trillions of dollars over the last 16 months as the rest of the you know planet descended into historical poverty. And, yes, um, <laughs> but they are literally in league with the government. They have become partners. Right, and all too yes. often we see, and Jason can back me up on this. You know, we see people they blame the free market and they blame they blame capitalism on this current situation. But this is nothing at all about. This is nothing free about what's going on here. You know, like when you have a choice and there's there's different places you can do and different things you can do to compete in a market. That's a free market, but there's absolutely nothing free about this one yet. Capitalism and and free markets get the blame for this entire ordeal when, in fact, it's nothing at all related to for the free market. Well, the problem that we have here, right, this is a serious problem. If you're under 30 right now, right, or even at 30, if you're an a, a, a older Zoomer or a mid-level millennial or something like that in that area, you came out of college and or high school, 2008, 2010, 12, in that area, maybe 2014. What was waiting for you? Nothing. Nothing was. It was a disaster for you. Nothing was waiting for you. And you were told your whole life, oh, just pass these tests and there'll be a cool job waiting for you. You know, just do as we say, follow the rules. Everything will be awesome. And it's not. And they're struggling. And they don't own much, right? They don't own cars. They don't own houses. They don't own much at all. They're a rental society, which makes them have a non-ownership mentality. And if you don't have an ownership mentality... Then you don't own anything. Then you can break stuff. It's always someone else's. It's always someone else's issue. And you were told your entire life you're awesome because you were born. So you're supposed to just be awesome. Everything's supposed to be fair. You've been told this literally for a decade or two. So now all of a sudden you come up and you're told that America is a capitalist society. You're told that America is about freedom. Well, it's not working for you. So of Hmm. course you don't like it. I get it. So now you go to people and say, you know, how can you help me? And what's happened right now in this country is the right has become the party of no answers and the left has become the party of bad answers. You ask people in the right when they say, well, what do you do about this? They go, well, you know, free market, just get the government out. Well, if I'm struggling and I don't trust the system, that's not an answer for me. So then I go to the left. They go, left, what do you do? They go, well, of course, communism. What else? Duh. Socialism. Of course. We'll just use force on everybody. That works. And you might in your head go, oh, women, I thought that socialism part was bad. I think my dad told me that was bad. But my school never told me that. But I think my bad, my dad did. But my dad, who cares? He's an old man. He doesn't get it. System doesn't work. Socialism sounds good to me. And a lot of them are moving towards socialism. And what I get from people who are older, and I'm in my 50s. So you see where my head is. I was in the Marine Corps in the 80s. And there was still a Soviet Union when I was in the Marine Corps. So... Mm-hmm. Older people often go, these millennials, they're just lazy and want free stuff. And I say, <laughs> no, look at it from their point of view. From their point of view, they believe they've been cheated, that the older generation lied to them. And sadly, that part's true. But yes. they believe that. So they think, oh, well, I'm just getting what I'm due. That's how they see it. So we in the liberty movement, and I consider myself part of that movement, 
have to start having better answers and communicating better to them. Otherwise, they're going to move towards the left. Yeah, great point. And uh, along those lines, as a former instructor who's taught at Yale and Columbia, do you agree with the sentiment that universities and academia at large has shifted more towards a inherent leftist bias in their positions and ideologies as far as like economics and social cultural policies? Not as much economics, and that part's going to seem weird, but hear me out on this. Why is the culture war so important now? And I'm, I'm doing air quotes you can't see, but I'm doing air quotes by important because it really isn't. But why is it supposed to be so important right now? Because it's an easy fix. That's the reason why. There are some serious institutional economic problems in this nation. One of the biggest ones, obviously, is the Fed. But there are so many more. Things like federally uh, sponsored college loans making college virtually worthless. So many problems involved in our nation. So, and to be forward, I want to give credit where credit was due. The Occupy Wall Street movement had some very good points. They really did. There are some serious issues in this world with money going to the banks first, too big to fail, government bailouts. These are all valid points. But when we went to them and said, okay, great. So now what's your solutions? They went, we're just mad. Okay, great. So how do we fix this? Man, or we're let's have a drum circle. That's literally what happened. I live in New York City. I was down there, and the answer was drum circle. That's not an answer. So then what happened is the Wall Streeters, they were scared because they saw this was real. Then they said, I have an idea. Hey, we'll do like sensitivity training? And they went, that really feels good. And the Wall Streeters said, wow, that feels good, but solves nothing. Let's do that. And so begins the culture wars. We'll start doing, you know, cultural stuff and we'll tell our we'll, we'll tell our you know bosses that, I don't know, they should love gay people or whatever you tell us to do. We'll do that. Just don't change the power structure whatsoever and let us keep being completely oligarchs with the government and screwing everybody over. Please don't change the system. We will we'll have quotas and put like women and stuff in our. Yeah, whatever. Sure. Just don't change our power structure. And sadly, most of the left said, that works. And that's why we're fighting culture wars now and changing nothing. You, you can see that shift take place over the last 10 years since yes. uh, Occupy started to wind down, or more than that, over the last decade. Uh, you could, you know, there's a, a tweet that went viral again. This time, Lockheed Martin had, uh, you know, they posted this uh, recruitment ad that said they had the, the most diverse um, gay and trans staff, you know, and, and biracial yep. and everything. And these are the people making weapons of war that are slaughtering hundreds of thousands of people across the planet, you know. And Absolutely. They, but that it appeased it, it appeased the masses that were pissed off at the at Wall Street and it and it made them misdirect their anger from the establishment to the person sitting next to them in class. And that's yes. yeah, it, that's ex- that's exactly right, which which is a benefit to the establishment because then they're when everybody's fighting with each other, they're not looking at who the real culprit is behind, you know, the man behind the, the curtain. This has yeah. happened so many times throughout history. Yes. They will either break people up by class or by race or by religion. Insert reason. Whatever whatever the elites of any country want to do, it doesn't matter. The the one that I think is maybe the most one of the most recent was the genocides in uh, Rwanda. The Hutu and the Tutsis were literally created by the Belgians. The Belgians said, oh, you guys look different because, I don't know, we say so. So you're taller and lighter, so we're going to call you. I forgot which one is which. To be, I, I, I'm sorry. I think we're going to call you the Hutu. The Hutu, you guys are cooler people. Why? Because we say so. So we're going to put you all in, in charge so that you can run things. This way you'll hate the other people who are lower class and you won't overthrow us. And that literally worked. And that stayed in their culture for literally decades. So then they went to a war to kill each other and they hacked each other to death. Million, a million people died over, over people trying to control them. We've done that in America. They did it. They, they do it in South Africa by making certain people called colored, which means you are of mixed descent. They call you colored. That's what it's a, literally on your government work. You are white, black, or colored. 
and colored people are better than black people. So they even make them fight amongst themselves. It's a common problem. It happens all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Divide and conquer is uh, something yep. that's been, you know, utilized by the ruling class for, you know, centuries at the very least. Yep. But yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Occupy Wall Street. And actually that has, uh, you know, for me, it's uh, a bit personal. That was the the movement that kind of uh, woke me up and com- got me aligned with my values and principles now. But uh, there's a great video of the financial advisor, uh, Peter Schiff, going down to mm-hmm. Occupy Wall Street. And he has a, a bodyguard there with him and a big sign saying, I'm the 1%. Let's have a conversation. And you're right, Larry. Most of the people who approach him, they don't have any type of argument. They don't have any type of understanding None. of economics. And here he is for almost an hour schooling these people. And, uh, you know, I, I think the old saying, stand for nothing, fall for anything. Uh, you know, they were adamantly against the the ruling class, the multinational corporations. And uh, a couple of years later, we had March Against Monsanto, which was a huge, huge protest mm-hmm. uh, globally. But now, yeah, 10 years later, you know, the left is actually advocating and defending these huge multinational corporations and, and yep. big pharma, you know, and now the whole yes. narrative has been changed. So it's almost been flipped on his head and, and there's zero consistency right now. Logically, it's amazing what happens well, when you well, put an LGBTQ is, sticker on something. <laughs> Thank you. You just you know? hit it. There is consistency. It is. I hate the other. Right. And you're seeing the repercussions of this in our politics now. And, and here's a part that, that some people will get, as I said, immediately. You know, there was if you look at the left and I live again, I live in New York City. Most of my friends, Democrats. But not every Democrat is the same. What united them last year? It wasn't that they all wanted, you know, whatever, Medicare for all, or they all wanted, they all backed BLM. It wasn't that. What what motivated them all was hatred of Trump. They were united by what they were against, not by what they were for. That's it. They didn't like Trump. They wanted him gone and united. Now, the, now what happened to the left now is now that that's, that's happened, they've beaten Trump. Now that Biden's in charge, the left's cracking up because they weren't all on the same page. They're not united by anything except hatred of Trump. So if you have a fine lefties get together and start talking, they almost always bring up Trump because it unites them. Otherwise, what do they have? The right, though, is the same. The right is anti-socialist. That's all they are, anti-socialist. And they like Trump, not because of policies. The average Trump supporter couldn't tell you what his policies were. But they know he's anti-socialist. That's my guy. You find something else happening. When the when the right starts talking about, um, you know, Trump is great, Trump is great, Trump is great, and when the left starts talking about I hate Trump, I hate Trump, I hate Trump, there's no policy being talked about. There's no change being talked about. It's just holding on to what we have. Don't let them take over. That's our current way of doing things. So whoever is seen as the person who's not – who's standing up for us or whatever that means – Whoever's doing that thing, standing up for us and saying what's right, whatever that means, whoever's doing that, that's the person I back. But ask them what they're doing to make your life better. Oh, they don't have an answer because no one does. That's a two-party system. The two-party system is pick me because the other guy is evil. If you want to actually save this country, which I do, the only way to do it without it, I don't see any other way is to have a strong third party. I think the only part I can do that is Libertarian Party. Why does that matter? Because we are the healers. If you right now are a Democrat and you want to go across the aisle and talk to a Republican, you lose your seat. If you're a Republican, you want to cross the aisle to a Democrat, you lose your seat. Which means the only thing we can do is try to overwhelmingly beat the other and then put our boot on their neck to the best of our ability. That's it. And since it's an existential threat, it's a crazy threat that will destroy the world, each side thinks, right? The left thinks the right's destroying the world, the right thinks the left's destroying the world. Then whatever I do is okay. It doesn't matter. And whoever my guy is, is okay. Oh, my guy is corrupt? So what? He's my guy and he's fighting your guy. It's okay. Your guy's corrupt too. So if my guy's corrupt, who cares? You're not fighting with honor, so neither should I. That's where we're going to right now. But when you have a libertarian party, a third party that's powerful, and when I mean powerful, I mean as little as 5% or 10% of the electorate. That's all we need. 
Because at that point, we become the tiebreakers. We become the people who can cross the aisle. If you're a Democrat, you can't talk to a Republican, but you can talk to a Libertarian. If you're a Republican, you can't talk to a Democrat, but you can talk to a Libertarian. You might say, well, Larry, how do you know that? I'll give you two examples recently. Last year, we had one Libertarian congressman, Justin Amash, and death of George, George Floyd happens. The right yells back the blue. The left yells defund the police. No change. Justin Amash says, you know what we should try? Start, why don't we start with ending qualified immunity? Let's, try, let's start with that. And he makes a small 10-page bill, and he's by himself. He's the only libertarian in all of Congress. So he gets both Democrats and Republicans to sign on because he has to and because they feel like they can. So he creates the first tripartisan bill in U.S. history. And the Democrat, Nancy Pelosi, and the Republican, Mitch McConnell, were like, we're not seeing that. You're an idiot. We're out. You're out. And that never even got on the floor. But that actually happened. Not just that. I ran for governor in 2018 in a super Democrat state. I don't know if you know that. You know, it's pretty Democratic. Uh, so pretty, <laughs> pretty deep blue state. So there were only 7,000 registered libertarians in my state. I got over 100,000 votes. So Democrats and Republicans will vote for libertarian. We are the peacemakers. We are the healers. Could you imagine if right now there were just two senators who are libertarian in our Senate right now in America? We would be... We would run the Senate because we'd be deciding on what we're actually going to vote on. We'd be deciding how to fix things so we can actually make peace if it's third party. Yeah, um, and I think that the Republican label, is, it just kills things. Like, So Rand Paul also proposed a, 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 very, a, bill, a very leftist bill, if you will, or a bill that was highly supported by the left, but they completely dismissed it when he proposed it, which was to end no-knock raids. After yep. the death of Brianna, you know, he called it the Brianna Act or what I think it was what it was called, yep. and um, and the left shouted him down. You know, they <laughs> like, oh, fuck, Rand Paul, he's just he's yes. a Republican, you know, and they almost you know, attacked they him at one point. Yeah. yeah, when they, they circled him, him. Yeah. yes, but uh, yeah. and absolutely. and he was he's been consistently against all the wars and uh, and everything, but he's he's largely ignored by the left because of that label, and uh, it's a shame. <laughs> it, it's it, it's crazy how far we've progressed in the last. 20 years from you know where the left used to be against the war and then the right used to support the war and now it's just this big gray area where everybody's forgotten about the war yep. and or the wars uh you know plural <clears throat> and um and they they actually well, no, couldn't we, care we, less we care about whether there are trans people in the athletics army. or yeah or yeah <laughs> or in the, army the army now you know that you, that, that new recruiting video which is kind of crazy yeah so that's what we care about. We care about if there are enough Latino people in the CIA. Not that I'm against Latino being in the CIA. I'm not even taking a stance on that. My point is, while social issues do matter, I, I'm, I'm not against the culture wars in general. I mean, those things do matter. People's you know, social issues do matter. Absolutely. They're just not a priority when other worse things are happening. And not just that. If I can hardly pay my bills... Why do I care about somebody else? If I can't pay my bills, why do I care about whether somebody is gay or straight or Latino or black or insert thing here? Why do I care? I don't. I'm worried about myself. Yeah. But when I'm doing well, then I go, yeah, what's going on with these gay people? Let's talk about that. That's important. Let's, let's help them out too. That's what winds up happening. So why don't we make people and put them in better positions so they can do more? But we're not doing that. Right. You know, we have the largest prison population in the planet. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should uh, focus on maybe ending the drug war before some of these social issues. I um, would like that, too. I'm with you. I'm really glad you brought up the George Floyd protests. That felt like a boiling point for America. The Free Thought Project has been covering police accountability stories for eight years now. And what we saw from the left, it was kind of this this mentality that a lot of the police brutality in America was directly responsible by Trump because Trump, you know, backed the blue and he tend to show more support towards police. And so there was no police brutality before Trump? I didn't know that. <laughs> right. A lot of people think That's amazing. that. That's amazing. <laughs> they elected Biden. And since then, he's actually... Oh, good. That means there's no more police brutality. Awesome. <laughs> no, it's quite the opposite. He's actually escalated the Department of Defense 1033 program transferring military equipment to uh, local police departments. 
And just recently, he's actually increased funding for ICE. So, you know, I think these types of things go under the radar after uh, everything's said and done. And of course, you know, we don't hear the left up in arms speaking out about this. But um, so, yeah, we do focus a lot on solutions and police accountability. What do you believe are some viable solutions for effective change in the realm of police accountability? And do you believe reform is possible? Um, I could, we could spend an hour on this. That's easy, two hours. This is one of our favorite um, I've topics. I've already done – for those of you who, who care, uh, my, my podcast, The Sharp Way, has a YouTube page. And if you look for Sharp Way or Larry Sharp and FAQS, facts, that is my police reform plan. FAQS. I came out with it last year. And also my, my other police reform act is QICC. Quick. Look at that. I did a video on both of those. They're about an hour, hour and a half long each. Both of those. Um, so we'll I have do that linked in the bottom of this podcast, listeners. Extensively. But let me cover both of those. I'll cover macro and then micro. On a micro level, how do you reform police? You break your police force up into four different units. And I call it FACS. F-A-Q-S. Family law, active policing, quality of life, and social work. Now, this works very well in cities. It has to be modified as you move out towards rural areas. And that piece has to be an, an admin piece, which I'll cover in a second. But in most cities, you can break it up in those four. Family law, active policing, quality of life, and social work. Each one of, the, each one of them will have a community component, which will make policing better. In the case of family law, family law, the community component, is some form of chaplain and or counselor. Generally speaking, local churches, church groups, religious organizations have chaplains. So do police forces sometimes. So do places like the Salvation Army, nonprofits. They volunteer to ride along with a cop. When it comes to family law, one cop, one chaplain in some way, shape, or form. The lead officer is always the chaplain. Why? Because I don't want a cop who just came from, say, a horrible traffic accident or a murder or a rape all of a sudden have a deal with two people yelling at each other over their kids. That is not going to go well. Someone's going to jail. Nothing but bad, and the kid is going to watch that person go to jail. I'd rather children not watch their parents do a perp walk. So I start with the chaplain. Now, the cop is there because sometimes you've got a problem where someone's got to be put down. Awesome. Cop is there to put somebody down. But does that cop have to be militarized? No. That cop probably has a billy club and a pistol. That's all they've got. They're good. That's all they're dealing gonna deal with is, is one unhappy parent in one place. Otherwise, the chaplain is able to hopefully talk people down and make people work. So that's place one. That has a community component and is non-militarized. The second piece is active policing. That's a more militarized police force. That's the actual going after bad guys, getting you know rapists, murderers, crooks. That's, that's your active policing. That group, its, it's community link, is going to be um, local community watch. Community watch will assist in getting the right person. So you don't have the Breonna Taylor piece where all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, 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 the wrong house. When you have a good tight community watch, it will take some time to make that work, but that's the community piece. It also adds something else. If you're wealthy in this country, and unless you're, you know, for some reason famous to where it makes, you know, a prosecutor look good, you don't get arrested. The, the DA or whomever calls your lawyer and says, hey, guys, look, I don't know what to do here. Uh, I got this warrant from Matt. What are we going to do? And Matt's lawyer goes, N- can he surrender tomorrow? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. What time? Like a 10 Perfect. Have them come in, surrender at 10, and we'll be fine. And your lawyer walks you in at 10 a.m. to surrender. You then surrender, you get booked, and you go home that day. No one even knows you were gone. You tell people at work that you took a day off. You literally got arrested. No one even knows. That's how that works consistently with the wealthy. Well, if you have community groups that are together, they can say, please don't come in here and shoot the place up. Can you give us six hours so that we can hand over bad guy Johnny? To you, can we do that? And if you have a good community, and this will take time, this is not a five minute solution, this is something like a five year solution. If you have that, the community begins to feel safe saying, We don't want the bad guys in our community. And we don't have to have the cops come in with all their guns ablazing. We can give up bad Johnny. Now, if bad Johnny doesn't want to give up, then the community's not mad when the police storm his house because we try to get him to give up, he won't. So the police storm in. It makes it better for the community. That's the more militarized police linking with the community. You have a better watch, but not just that too many cops spend too much time active policing. I was a Marine for many years. You don't put a Marine in combat 
for any more. Maximum is 15 months. Usually it's between 6 and 12. But maximum is 15 months in combat. Then you pull them off the front line and you have them, you know, sitting in the States or in garrison for six months to a year. Why aren't we doing that with our cops? With this four-prong police force, you only spend a certain amount of time in active policing. Then we pull you off because you've probably seen a bunch of stuff that's probably going to mess you up. You probably got PTSD. I don't care what a tough guy you are. You're still just a human being. So you know what? Do social work for a year and make it mandatory within a police force. Because if you don't make it mandatory, the tough guys never want to accept that they have to leave. Well, you don't have a choice. Everybody does it. Tough guy and not tough guy. Go write tickets for, for a year. Everybody does it, right? Go deal with social work for a year. Sit the chaplain in the chaplain's car for a year. Handle some of that PTSD you got from being four years on the front line. Deal with that stuff. So you rotate them out, which makes them better cops. Next, Q is quality of life. Quality of life is things like noise pollution, you know, stuff like that. Those type of, you know, ticketing. Those are bigger in urban areas, not as big in rural and suburban areas. So they'd be smaller in those areas. But that that uh, community link is nonprofit dispatch. So places like the uh, your 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 veterans of foreign wars, your American Legion, they will be dispatchers for that. They will know if it's real or not. They can handle some stuff on their own. They can call on cops when required. Again, not required to be militarized. This is ticket giving, right? So maybe you got a revolver and a baton, and that's about all you got as a cop. You're not militarized for that one. Not required, right? You're not you're not you're not going in there and shooting up people. That's not going to happen. So you're not militarized there either. Maybe a taser, that kind of thing, and that's all you got. And then the last piece is social work. In that case, the cop rides directly with a social worker, which could be from a local college, colleges, um, individual people who want to write a book or whatever they want to do. So now you have those who ride with the cop. You have a social worker riding with the cop. The social worker is the lead. And in that case, the cop doesn't even have to be uniformed. The cop could be in a in a non-militaristic uniform. That's, again, not militarized. That's people like drug addicts, uh, homeless people. That's social work. And the social worker is the lead. Sometimes that can be dangerous, which is why the cop is there to put them down. You have to be. But again, it doesn't be militarized. This is maybe, you know, pistol, taser, baton. That's it. That's what you have to worry about. So you break it up into that, rotate them back and forth. You can have a better police force. And when you're having more problems in your local community, the local community can you know, assign resources as they see fit. When it comes to more rural areas, the part you can't always break up your cops in those four because often you don't have a large police force. So instead, you break your, your police force into two or three, one of them being active policing and the other is everything else. And the third is administration. So you rotate your cops between active policing and everything else to give them a break. And all your admin is taken up with a civilian component. So admin has oversight. Um, the civilian component has oversight, watches things. And one of the reasons why cops can't get to places in more rural areas is literally they're doing paperwork. That's a big problem in rural communities because they're often uh, held to a standard of a big city police force administratively, but they simply don't have the skill set or the people that do it. So you have a, a community a police, a community department be part of that, so they're part of the police force to allow the small police forces to do the job more effectively. And again, with this outline, I'm not telling who what to do. I'm allowing each city and community to break the police force up as they see appropriate. I don't decide. They do. I want people to be policed how they want to be policed. Does that plan make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. it it's actually probably one of the most in-depth uh, answers we've gotten on that. And it certainly uh, shows that you've put a lot of time and thought into it. So thank you for that. I have answers. Yeah. But I'm not done yet. <laughs> That's the micro level. Okay. The macro level is even is different. That's my quick plan. Q-I-C-C. Q stands for ending qualified immunity. We are already on our way to doing that. Ending qualified immunity. But now there's a second piece that goes along with that. It isn't just ending qualified immunity for cops. It's for all government workers, every one of them, to include judges and congressmen and everybody. Qualified immunity goes away, number one. But now with that, you have to go to I, which is insurance. I want all law enforcement agents, all of them, all law enforcement officers, to carry their own liability insurance. Professionals do it. I do it as a professional. Doctors do it. Lawyers do it. They carry their own professional insurance, liability insurance. They screw up. The city doesn't pay. The town doesn't pay. We don't pay. Their insurance pays. So if you are a cop and you made a one mistake, your insurance rates go up for a year, back in action, life is good, no worries. You're a bad cop and you keep making mistakes, guess what happens? 
well, your insurance rates go up so high, does it make sense for you to even do this anymore? Or at one point, you're uninsurable, in which case you can't be hired. So the union doesn't have to fire you. The city doesn't have to fire you. You have let yourself go because you can't get insured. You are no longer qualified to be an officer. It keeps the union's hands clean, the city's hands clean. You just screwed up so much, you can't be insured. So that takes that piece out of the equation. There's another piece. When you have a bad cop, what happens now is the cop that says does something bad in, in County A, they screw up. They don't get fired because of union issues and liability issues for the police, for the city. The city can't say that they did a bad thing. That's why they fired them because now the city's liable and lawsuits come. So the city says nothing. The guy or gal just resigns. They resign. So they resign. So they go to another county and they get a job again. Well, he's a bad cop. Well, she's a bad cop. Doesn't matter. There was no disciplinary action and they weren't fired. So you get a job. Well, they're a bad cop. So they screw up again. So now what does the public see? Bad cop in County 1, another bad cop in County 2? Oh, my God, they're everywhere. No, they're not. It's the same cop. And that cop goes through three, four, five counties. If you think I'm making it up? Ask cops. They'll tell you this. That actually happens constantly. So it looks like there's 55 bad cops. Now it's like four of them in, in, in 11 states each. <laughs> so they're, they're Gypsy screwing up cops, constantly. they call them. There we go. Yes, absolutely. So you now look at like the guy like, like, like Chauvin. That guy had a rap shit. There's no tomorrow. That was a bad cop. And I know people don't think he killed or did kill. Doesn't matter. He was a bad cop, regardless of what you think whether he killed George Floyd or not. That guy had a rap sheet. And if you had a liability insurance, that would have never happened. Because at one point, the insurance company goes, I'm not insuring you anymore, man. Sorry. You can't be a cop. Go do something else. And if you're that bad of a cop, you shouldn't be a cop. And I'm fine with that. No worries. Now, of course, the response I always get is, but Larry, will the government want that? Yes, because what happens now is the government now it's in their best interest to get the truth, not just to fire somebody because they're afraid of backlash or to back somebody because they're afraid of a lawsuit. Backlash and lawsuit should not be on the government's mind at all. It should just be truth. That's it, because the insurance company is going to audit. So just do the truth. That's it. You don't have to be political, nothing. Truth only, let the insurance company handle it. Done. But it's the second piece. Well, Larry, will the unions like it? Yeah, because you let the unions be the brokers. If the unions broker the insurance, that's how they make money. That's all unions care about anyways, making money. So now they'll go ahead and make their money. They're happy. They'll broker this. But more importantly, if, they, if they're brokering this insurance, then it's in their best interest to have a bunch of good cops. So what will unions do? Right now, most unions spend 90% of the time dealing with 10% of the bad apples. Well, they would actually spend 90% of the time they went 90% of the good apples because that's how they make their cash. So it even shifts the incentive of unions, shifts the incentives of, of governments, and allows bad cops to be removed while protecting and encouraging good cops. That's why the insurance piece works so well. The third piece, C, that is to remove cannabis from Schedule 1. When you take cannabis off Schedule 1, by default, you have a whole lot less unnecessary stops across the entire nation, and it begins to end the war on drugs. So I want to end it tomorrow. I'm realistic. I can't take cannabis off schedule one. That's, that's the piece that will begin everything collapsing that will eventually end the war on drugs and also will begin to stop these unnecessary um, encounters for no real good reason. Four, end uh, civil asset forfeiture. How do you do that? For, for some stupid reason, our government has decided that that's constitutional. It's clearly not, but decided it is. Okay, great. Here's how you get around that without having to go through Congress. You simply, in your local area or state or county, say anything taken from civil asset forfeiture, only X dollars can go to local community. Everything else must be returned via, ta via a tax refund. Done. X percent, X dollars, whatever, 1000 bucks, 10000 bucks. insert number, whatever the appropriate number is in your area, that's it. What have you just done? You've stopped every incentive to use uh, your police force or your law enforcement as a profit center because it's no longer a profit center. And once it's no longer a profit center, I'm not going to try pushing my officers to write tickets or to, or to grab people or to, or to grab things because I'm not getting it. I can't do it anymore. I've got to find other ways. So civil asset forfeiture will begin to stop, unnecessary stops, taking people's stuff, all that stuff will begin to happen. That's my plans. Man, that sounds like it was uh, taken directly from the freethoughtproject.com. <laughs> that oh, that, that QICC plan is uh, – it. I mean, I think that people who have been – researching this for for a long time 
they come to those natural conclusions because we see those as the biggest problems in policing. And uh, though there is systemic racism, you know, I think dwelling on that does a disservice to the your QICC program that would actually make far more change than just teaching kids that there's systemic racism. The, like just well, to end, me, end the avenues for this, the racists to, uh, to you know, to, to prey on people. If we if we eliminate those avenues, then there's nowhere for these there's no outlets for these racists to do their their dirty work. And you, um, you, those you, solutions you've are, hit a, a very important part here that I, that I think is critical for us to understand as mm-hmm. a nation. And we don't. If you're going to say there's systemic racism and there is, then why would I alienate people by calling individual people bad? If it's a system, then I need allies to repair the system. If it's systemic, that means by default, it actually doesn't matter your race because the system is racist, which is why black cops also kill black people, which is why Hispanic cops also kill Hispanic people. That still happens. Why? Because the system is bad, not the individuals. So let's stop punishing the individuals and let's start changing the system. And when the system is no longer racist, then anyone who does that stuff is an actual racist. Then we can deal with those people who are actually racist. And there are some. But maybe I am – maybe I'm naive here and, I'm, and I will accept my naivete if it's true. I just don't believe the average American, white, black, or, or Hispanic, or Asian, or whatever, I don't think the average American goes, hmm, how can I be racist today? How can I find my privilege today? How can I hurt the other today? I don't think they do that. I think they function within their environments, within their systems, and the system pushes them into certain areas. Most people move towards those areas or ideas. If the system is changed, most people will change. I agree, man. That's a very good point. Yeah, we, we tend to focus more on the decentralized solution, uh, decentralizing. Yep. But uh, you know that was probably one of the most concise, uh, well-thought-out plans that I've heard uh, from any type of libertarian. So I, I certainly give you credit there. And I'm really happy that you brought up the liability insurance uh, solution. That That is a market solution. And uh, yep. I think one that we should embrace as libertarians. I actually did a, a video on it last year. And considering how many millions of dollars, uh, I think it was uh, the top 20 US cities paid over $2 billion in settlements. Uh, since yep. 2015. So, I mean, that's millions of dollars of our tax dollars there that it's just being literally thrown away and actually subsidizing police brutality. But uh, you're well, right. I, I'm not even going to say how much money we've paid out. What about all the salaries of of the lawyers? You know, New York State sure. has, a, has, a, has an issue, and most of you don't understand this. New York State has a massive, New York City's huge, New York City also uh, state huge amount of lawyers who defend the state. Because the state or the city, oh, I think it's the city. The city has decided that because it doesn't want to seem biased. I'm not joking. It's going to make you laugh. Because it doesn't want to seem biased in any way, it fights everything to the end. Because then it's not biased. It fights everything to the end. It won't, it won't settle to the very end. It fights everything. What does that mean? Law, lawyer fees in New York City. Everyone's making money. Lawyer fees, lawyer fees, lawyer fees. You know, you, you were right about that. We could probably have an entire podcast on this topic. So maybe we could bring <laughs> you back someday and talk specifically about this. But uh, seeing we're running out of time here, um, we'd like to talk about your book a little bit. So July 12th, you're releasing a book titled On Happiness, and it's your first book. It will be centered around purpose, respect, love, and your core values of your political philosophy. Uh, what more can you share about the book and what inspired you to write it? It's actually not a political book. Um, I wrote it because I always say the same thing and people never believe me when I say it. It actually teases me sometimes. And I say the libertarian movement, libertarian party is not about liberty or freedom. People say that all the time. Yeah, it is. No, it isn't. It's about happiness. It's about happiness. So how can I be happy? How can I give somebody happiness? I can't as a government. What can I do? I can give you the freedom to go pursue happiness as you see fit. That's what government should be doing, allowing us to pursue happiness. It's in our divorce papers from the UK. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That's literally in our divorce papers. So that's what we should be doing, pursuing happiness. But the reality of it is, people in the liberty movement, we often lie to ourselves. And we say, well, everybody wants freedom. No, they don't. No, they don't. 
Lots of people don't want freedom. Lots don't. And that's okay. I'm not mad at you for that. Maybe it's, you're, it's a place where you are in your life where you need some help or someone to tell you to do. Or maybe you don't know anybody. Whatever. Whatever. You're, do you. I don't mind. But I want to give you the freedom to not do that or to do that. I want you to find happiness. That's what I want you to do. And your life will change. Maybe now you want to you know, you know, somehow be controlled. Maybe next year you don't. Year after you do. Whatever. Do you. I don't mind. It's all good. Be who you want to be. And that's what Liberty Movement is about. To be happy, any one of us, we have to have three things. We have to feel respected. We have to feel loved. And we have to have purpose. If you have all three, you'll be happy. The problem is that's fleeting because we lose purpose and we lose love and we lose respect. It's how it works. So what must we do? Pursue it. That's the pursuit of happiness. That's what we're all about. And we find it in different places in different ways. And we can have one or the other, and it helps us to find the third or the second. But if we have none of them, and we have no real hope of achieving any of those three, we will become helpless, we will become hopeless, and we will become self-destructive. That's simply human nature. We will start acting in a self-destructive way. We will hurt ourselves and or others. I don't want Americans to do that. Why? Because happy people grow their families. Happy people start businesses. Happy people, you know, don't hurt others. Happy people don't steal other people's stuff. Happy people make a better environment. Happy people don't want to hurt others or be racist. Happy people don't want to do bad things because they're happy. And the example I will give you, people will tell me all the time, but Larry, there are bad people. There are. But if I'm talking to Matt right now and I'm a bad guy, I'm a bad guy, and I'm like, yeah, let's go do bad stuff. If Matt's happy and I say, hey, let's go rob a bank, Matt goes, what are you doing, man? I'm not robbing a bank. What's wrong with you? Don't rob a bank. It's dumb. Don't do that. And Matt does his own world. Well, that's good. If Matt's not happy and he thinks the world's ending and he thinks he has no hope and he thinks he has no respect, I go, let's rob a bank. He's like, yeah, which one? And now all of a sudden he's my getaway driver. Now he's robbing banks with me. Happy people don't rob banks. I want people to be happy. This book is a lot of my own failures, my own pain, me falling down. The recognizing how I got back up and showing you some ways. And I talk about four different arenas of your life. I talk about family, personal, social, um, and professional. All four ways. And if you can make all 12 of those rock and roll, man, life is good. But you don't need all 12. Just need three. All right, Freethinkers. Just a reminder to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. Also, go to our website. And at the top, there's a link to sign up for our newsletter. That is one of the best ways to follow us and see our articles without social media interference or throttling. We are on Minds, MeWe, Telegram, Gab, Parler, Instagram, Twitter, and many others. Also, if you value what we do, please consider subscribing to our organization. We have a $3, $5, and $10 a month level. Each come with different swag. And we also accept one-time donations. Also, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Free Thought Project has partnered with a group called Legal Shield that gives you 24-hour access to an attorney in your pocket, literally on your phone at all times. Um, if you get a traffic ticket, these people will go to court for you and fight your traffic ticket. If you need to get a will made, they'll make your will. If you have a small business and have any legal questions or anything like that, you can go to freethought.wearelegalshield.com and you can sign up there. And it is only it starts out at only twenty four ninety five a month. So which attorney's fees alone are several hundred dollars an hour. And this gives you 24-7 attorney privileges with, and, and, and also hundreds of hours of, of courtroom costs, like to pay an attorney to represent you in a courtroom. Um, it also helps us, and um, I mean, I think everybody needs it. We, when Jason and I heard about it the first time, we're like, how come we haven't been a partner with this group you know, since day one? It sucks that we just found out about this, but now that we have, we are really pushing it because for $25, this is a huge help, and it, it levels the playing field and allows people that don't have the money to afford massive attorneys to jump in and compete with the, those, those people who do. So it's uh, the freethought.wearelegalshield.com or anywhere on the website. You can just scroll to the top and click the Need a Lawyer uh, link, and it's on every single page of every page of the website. Uh, Legal Shield, and I highly recommend it. Jason and I both have it, and I don't know what I was doing without this before. 
Well, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. Uh, thank you for making time. Check out Mr. Sharp's book when it drops July 12th. And I know you also have a nightly show called The Sharp Way, which you mentioned earlier in the podcast. Um, you can find it at sharpway.com. And I know you you're got on- it. Just click on sharpway.com, click on book, and you'll see what the book is. Okay, perfect. And you're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, uh, TikTok. Is there anything else you'd like to plug or share with our audience? I'm on all the interweb stuff sharpway.com enjoy i hope you listen awesome thank you so much for joining us today mr sharp thank you yeah great to talk to you there thanks man all righty